Hi, this is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of having on the podcast uh, uh, two authors from uh, this very important article that will be a, a lead article in our journal. Uh, the title of the article is Adjuvant Treatment After Radical Surgery for Cervical Cancer with Intermediate Risk Factors. Is it time for an update? Um, the authors uh, that will be on the podcast today are David Viveros, who is from the National Cancer Institute in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, Rene Pareja, who's one of our associate editors, and also um, he is in the Clinica Astorga in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, credit also, obviously, to the first author who is not joining us, uh, Dr. Juliana Rodriguez. So welcome, and uh, thank you uh, again for participating in the, in the podcast. Thank you, Pedro, for the invitation. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to be back, and I think there is no better way to do it uh, with my mentor. Outstanding. No, yeah, this this is great, and and actually, say welcome back to both of you. Um, so, uh, lots of questions, and obviously, we want to hopefully get through all of them. Um, I'll start with you, David. Um, let's start by discussing some a little bit of uh, historical perspective. Um, I was wondering if you can just kind of like give us uh, certainly your uh, your brief overview. And, and certainly we know that the adjuvant treatment um, for these intermediate risk factors, cervical cancer, was started on the set list criteria from GOG 92. So for, for our listeners, can you just uh, um, briefly outline the results of, of that study and what were some of the long-term outcomes? Oh, sure. First, uh, I think we should say that the study of Dr. Alexander Sedlis, published in 1999, should be seen with all the respect that a randomized controlled trial should have, mainly as it was a study including a surgical intervention. And even today, more than 30 years after they started the study, carrying out a randomized controlled trial, as you know, is not an easy task. Uh, this trial uh, assessed the efficacy of adjuvant external beam radiotherapy compared to observation in patients with early stage cervical cancer with squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, or adenosquamous carcinoma. Patients underwent a radical hysterectomy and lymph node dissection and had some risk factors for recurrence. There were four combinations of risk factors, including clinical tumor size assessed by palpation, lymph vascular space invasion, and stromal invasion in the pathology report. And the primary outcome was recurrence-free survival. Uh, about 270 patients were randomized to radiotherapy or observation. Uh, almost 8% of patients had squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, you know, 27% of patients had tumors larger than 4 centimeters, and 46% of cases had the combination of deep stromal invasion and positively vascular space invasion. Patients at that time received external beam radiotherapy, no brachytherapy, and they used a four-field technique with a total dose of 46 or up to 50 gray uh, for radiotherapy. In the initial report in 1999, there was a statistically significant difference in the risk of recurrence between the two arms of the study, almost 28% in the observation arm compared to 15% in the external beam radiotherapy. 
uh, 78% of recurrences were just local and there were no uh, statistically significant differences in the overall survival outcome, although data were not mature then. Severe adverse events were more common in the radiotherapy arm, as we could expect. And later in 2006, Rodman published an update of the original study. The median follow-up time for patients still alive at last contact was about 10 years, and only seven additional recurrences were reported, three in the radiotherapy group and four in the observation group. Uh, for this analysis, a statistically significant 46% recurrence risk reduction was confirmed, and the overall survival analysis was reported. There were no statistically significant differences between radiotherapy and observation groups, and 20% of patients died in the radiotherapy group compared to 29% in the observation group. Risk of bias for this randomized control trial were unclear for most domains like random sequence generation, allocation concealment, blinding, and even some selective reporting. Great. So um, thank you so much for, for that overview, uh, David. And, and, and of course, obviously, the highlight is that uh, certainly we're still using this criteria some 30 years after its initial uh, publication. Um, uh, you know, certainly, uh, Renee, what, what, what are the guidelines telling us today? I mean, what, what, what does the NCCN guidelines or the ESGO guidelines tell us about uh, the treatment for this high-risk or intermediate-risk factor patients with cervical cancer after a radical hysterectomy? Thank you, Pedro. According to NCCN 2022 and ESGO 2018 service cancer guidelines in patients with positive nodes, margins, or parametrial involvement, external pelvic radiotherapy plus chemotherapy and brachytherapy is considered the standard of care. Regarding intermediate risk criteria, according to NCCN guidelines and um, under a category A, they recommend external radiotherapy in patients uh, accomplishing cell uh, risk criteria, that is tumor larger than five centimeters or combination of tumor two to four and LBSI or deep stromal infiltration. Uh, observation, observation is not an option for, for them. The Europeans, by the other hand, uh, also recommend uh, radiotherapy in this group of patients, but they have a statement at the end uh, saying that if the patient is operated by the highly specialized team, uh, observation could be uh, an option, but it is not supported with any kind of category of recommendation. Great. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll get into that question about the specialized teams in a little bit. Um, so, David, I want to actually then go back to uh, getting to the issues of the set list criteria and, and, and particularly, you know, the criteria to determine adjuvant treatment. And, and my recollection is the majority of patients, 79% in that set list study had squamous carcinoma. Now, wouldn't you say that this could potentially be problematic when we sort of make these blanket generalizations of using the set list criteria for other histologic subtypes like adenocarcinoma or adenosquamous carcinoma? What, what are your, your thoughts? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the concerns when we analyze the results of any clinical trial is the applicability in routine clinical practice. 
Uh, as you said, in UG92, 20% of patients had adenosquamous carcinoma or adenocarcinoma, and that's uh, 34 patients in the radiotherapy group and only 25 in the observation group. Even when the proportion of non-squamous cell carcinoma could be concordant with the normal distribution of histological types in cervical cancer, squamous cell is more common, it is at the end uh, a really low number of patients. You know, in the updated report in 2006, there were relevant differences between histotypes for the recurrence risk and the risk reduction with radiotherapy was more evident for adenocarcinoma and adenosquamous carcinoma. However, uh, considering the limited number of patients with these histological types, the imbalance between the groups, and as that was not a planned analysis uh, for the study, the results should be seen with caution. It's possible, like you said before, that the GOG92 conclusions represents mostly the results of only squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah. Uh, and, and along with that, I mean, one of the other issues is, um, the, you know, the, the FIGO staging has changed over time. Um, and I was wondering if, if Renee could speak a little bit about that and, and how does this impact the results that we follow from the CELIS study as it pertains to the subsequent changes in the FIGO staging. Thank you, Pedro, for, for asking about this. Uh, when Sedley's work was published, the FIGO classification did not include even the categories 1B1 and 1B2 that were included in the FIGO 2009 classification. Today, the stage 1B is divided in three categories, as all of us already know. The most, the most important issue to highlight is that in Sedley's trial, almost 27% of patients included had tumors larger than four centimeters. Mm -hmm. Centimeters, those that today correspond with stage 1B3. And according or current guidelines, they have to undergo upfront chemo radiotherapy. Once you consider how the results of Sedley's study would change if they would exclude tumors larger than four centimeters. I also have to remind that classification in Sedley's study was done only by physical examination, which is associated with a 25% of discordance with pathological measurement. So one out of four tumors will be misclassified in Sedley's study. Finally, the FIGO 2018 staging classification allows us the possibility of using modern imaging techniques with high sensitivity in determining tumor size, such as MRI, that wasn't available more than 20 years ago. Also, tumor size can be defined by pathological assessment of surgical specimen, and this information was not available for Sedley's study. Yeah, so it sounds like obviously we have gotten a lot more sophisticated in, in assessing tumor size. And I'll get back to David with that, with the next question is, you know, why is measurement of, of tumor size so, so difficult to standardize in patients with cervical cancer? And how does this impact the Sedley's study results and their interpretation? All right, you know, uh, tumor size evaluation is not complicated only for us in cervical cancer. It's also a problem for all solid tumors, and many factors make uh, the tumor size determination difficult. The evaluation in the physical examination is probably inadequate as you can only assess one of the tumor dimensions, which could be a limiting factor particularly for endocervical tumors. And there is also significant inter-observer and even inter-observer variability. 
tumor size is assessed in radiological imaging and pathology reports also. And for the images, the contribution is dependent on available technology. If you use computer tomography, ultrasound, or MRI. And of course, it also depends on the expertise of the radiologist and on which tumor measurement is considered as the size or dimension uh, for the classification as tumors are not just perfect spheres. For the pathology report, there is variability among physicians and there should be considered also the effect on the tumor size from the preparation process for the surgical specimen. Uh, there is another factor to contemplate when previous procedures like conizations are performed as the tumor size in cases with residual tumor in the final pathology specimen could be over or underestimate. So uh, in the end, we still do not have a consensus about how to measure cervical tumor in clinical practice. However, uh, we know that there is a better correlation between trained uh, radiologist measurements in ultrasound or MRI reports with the final pathology report. And those measurements are accepted in the last FIGO staging system. In the Sedley's trial, only palpation in the physical exam was used for determining the tumor size. And currently we think it would be exotic to have a patient that does uh, not undergo imaging uh, before surgery for cervical cancer. Uh, in other words, it's possible that today any patient would be like those included in the SEDLIS trial. Yeah, so for further evidence of... Uh... Of the the you know certainly the 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 up to date evaluation of of patients and and that brings me to another question that I know certainly Renee uh, is very passionate about this topic um, and this first question is actually from our one of our fellows Harris Sharalampas uh, from Greece and his question is since the cellist studies there have been a lot of changes in terms of surgical technique and of course we know approaches. How does this impact how we view the settler's results? And should the decision for adjuvant treatment take into consideration the quality of the surgery and also the center where it was performed? Okay, thank you. Uh, I think the most remarkable change in the last 20 years was the rise and fall of minimal invasive surgery in cervical cancer that should not affect the presence or absence of settler's criteria. Probably we are doing better open radical hysterectomies right now after performing minimal invasive surgery during almost 20 years. Regarding quality control of the surgery, Felix Boria from Spain published last year in International Journal of Gynecological Cancer a analysis of SUCCOR trial that included more than 1,200 patients making emphasis in compliance with current ESGO quality indicators in service cancer surgery showing high levels of compliance. Among others, we can mention this criteria according to ESGO. Surgery performed by a certified gynecologic oncologist, a complete preoperative workup, and the surgical report has several, several elements that have to be accomplished with. Uh, also pathology report, prospective reporting on the follow-up and the morbidity in the first 30 days post-surgery, uh, presence of urological fistula, uh, negative vaginal and parametrial margins, um, upstaged uh, 1B tumors, recurrence rate at two years, lymph node staging according to guidelines, and adjuvant chemoradiotherapy in 1B1 
that according to guidelines to be less than 15%. And they, they showed 7% of adjuvant. From a personal point of view, in the absence of major criteria for adjuvant treatment, all the patients with intermediate risk criteria should be discussed in a multidisciplinary DISPO conference because practices regarding adjuvant treatment can vary broadly among centers and countries as it pertains to add chemotherapy, to give brachytherapy, to observe specific cases, etc. I'd like to mention that today is challenging to schedule a patient to surgery if there is, for instance, LVSI in the biopsy and the MRI shows a lesion of three centimeters compromising two thirds of cervical stroma. When discussed in multidisciplinary staffs, there are people in favor of upfront chemoradiotherapy, which is always an option, versus proceed with surgery. I have to say that in Sedley's study, all the patients underwent surgery. So we don't have a strong data on applying Sedley's criteria in order to avoid postoperative radiotherapy. Great. So then now that brings me to a few questions about adjuvant treatment. And, and David, you mentioned that Sedley's criteria actually didn't show an improvement in overall survival if you had radiation therapy. Is there any data in the literature that shows a benefit of radiotherapy or chemoradiotherapy in the setting of adjuvant treatment in the intermediate risk population? Uh, actually, no. You know, regarding adjuvant treatment in cervical cancer, almost all decisions are based on two classic randomized control trials, Sedley's and Peter's trials. And most additional studies are just retrospective observational studies. Uh, the Peters study was published back in 2000, uh, assessing the use of uh, concomitant cisplatin-based chemo radiotherapy compared to pelvic radiotherapy, but in a high-risk population defined by lymph node metastasis, parametral involvement, and also positive margins. Uh, and they show actually that there was a benefit in terms of recurrence and also an overall survival. There was almost twice the risk of recurrence and death in the group of exclusive pelvic radiotherapy. And so far is the only randomized control trial that shows overall survival benefits in this context. Uh, recently in 2021, the results of the STAR trial were published. In this trial, the authors assessed the efficacy of exclusive radiotherapy, concurrent chemoradiotherapy, and sequential chemoradiotherapy, but in a heterogeneous group of patients. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, but more than 1,000 patients were randomized. Uh, sequential chemoradiotherapy in this context was superior to exclusive radiotherapy in patients with high-risk factors, but also in patients with intermediate factors. And it was also superior to concurrent chemoradiotherapy in patients with high-risk factors. Overall survival was higher in patients that received sequential chemoradiotherapy compared to exclusive radiotherapy. And there were no statistically significant differences between concurrent chemoradiotherapy and exclusive radiotherapy. But I think the results should be analyzed with caution as factors for 
uh, inclusion were mixed among those that we consider high risk and also others for intermediate risk. There were patients with lymph node metastasis, positive parametrium or margins, but also with only lymphatic vascular space involvement or deep stromal invasion. Almost 20% in this trial uh, received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and there was also a significant imbalance in lymph node metastasis uh, between the groups. Maybe the external applicability of these results is at least controversial. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, and Rene, you you alluded to um, the issue of no treatment in intermediate risk factor patients, and I was wondering if we can come back to that. And you know, certainly, that we talked about the the studies that showed a a, a potential advantage to uh, adjuvant treatment. But do we have any data with regards to not doing any adjuvant treatment on an intermediate risk cervical cancer patient after radical hysterectomy? Pedro, certainly we have data, but not from prospective randomized clinical trials. In our article this month, we mentioned this issue in detail. I'd like to highlight a manuscript from Cibula and collaborators that compared 177 patients that undergone surgery and had intermediate risk factors who were just observed with 104 similar ones that received adjuvant therapy from three different centers. Authors found no differences in total recurrence rate, five-year overall survival or disease-free survival among group, between groups. Authors highlighted their recurrence rate of 6.3% and local recurrence rate of 1.6%, comparing it with Sedley's paper showing 27.9% and 19.3% respectively. So almost uh, 10 times. Uh, also, Van der Elden and Kao also found similar outcomes in retrospective analysis in different papers, and the results can be read in, in our manuscript. Nasudi uh, and collaborators reported a study using the National Cancer Database, the NCDB. Uh, the authors compared the outcomes of observation alone versus adjuvant radiotherapy for 765 patients after radical hysterectomy and persons of intermediate risk factors. The four year overall survival rates were 88% and 87% without any statistical significant difference. The authors found no benefit of administering concurrent chemotherapy with four-year overall survival rates of 89% versus 86%. Important limitation of this manuscript that, and that are that NCDB does not collect data on depth of stromal infiltration and also does not collect data on tumor recurrence, the most critical outcome in, in satellite study. Finally, a recently published systematic review with meta-analysis, including articles with more than 10 patients with two comparative arms, neither the relative risk of recurrence nor the relative risk of mortality were statistically significant. I think I'm convinced that all of this generating hypothesis literature supports a modern randomized control trial on intermediate risk factors after radical history. Yeah, which actually brings me to the next question. This is from Gabriela Chivardi, uh, one of our fellows also. And uh, David, I'll ask you, um, can you share with us uh, details of any ongoing or upcoming prospective studies evaluating 
patients with intermediate risk after radical hysterectomy? Oh, sure. There are two randomized control trials that takes our interest. You know, the first one is DOG263. It is a randomized clinical trial assessing the efficacy of adjuvant concurrent platinum-based chemo radiotherapy compared to exclusive pelvic radiotherapy in patients with intermediate risk cervical cancer after surgical management with radical hysterectomy and pelvic lymph node dissection. Squamous cell carcinoma, adenosquamous carcinoma, or adenocarcinoma are considered for inclusion. And the same set list risk factors combinations are used for inclusion. The primary outcome for this trial is recurrence-free survival, and secondary outcomes include overall survival, adverse events, and quality of life. It had a target accrual of more than 500 patients and is now close to accrual with an estimated primary completion date in April 2024. The other uh, randomized clinical trial is Cervantes trial. Cervantes trial is an inclusive trial reflecting the current variations in practice among different countries and centers. After radical hysterectomy adjusted to the tumor size and tumor characteristics, and including also sentinel lymph node evaluation, it will assess the efficacy of adjuvant external radiotherapy with or without brachytherapy and with or without concurrent chemotherapy in patients with uh, intermediate risk uh, factors. Only patients with a squamous cell carcinoma or HPV-related adenocarcinoma are considered for inclusion. And there are four risk factor combinations that are different from those in this trial. You know, the first one is uh, tumor equal or larger than four centimeters. And for tumors between two and four centimeters with an additional risk factor that is lymphovascular space invasion, the tumor-free distance of less than three millimeters or uh, deep stromal invasion. The primary outcome for this trial is disease-free survival also, and secondary outcomes include overall survival, adverse events, and quality of life. The target accrual is 514 patients, and the estimated primary completion date is for December 2029. <laughs> um, patients undergoing surgery in our clinical practice for early-stage cervical cancer differ from those in previous studies. You know, now we have better preparative selection, advanced imaging assessment, sentinel clean out techniques with ultra-staging, and of course, also better radiotherapy techniques to improve the schemes, doses, and also toxicities. We think that this is important because these new studies include patients that are similar to those uh, patients we see in clinical practice. Uh, but however, as uh, inclusion criteria and adjuvant treatments are not the same, the external validity must be assessed with caution after the final results of both randomized trials will be published. Great. And David, I'll follow up with a question actually by Arthur Su, our um, um, fellow also. He's an administrative fellow for the journal. Um, you know, many patients, when they're going to get adjuvant treatment, end up actually undergoing chemo radiotherapy rather than just the radi radiation alone, as patients did in the set list criteria. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts as to the benefit of the chemo radiation in this, uh, in this group of patients? Uh, that's an excellent question. You know, uh, no level one evidence supports concurrent uh, chemo radiotherapy instead of exclusive pelvic radiotherapy. 
in patients with intermediate risk factors. However, as chemotherapy has proved overall survival benefits in other contexts like adjuvant treatment for high-risk patients or even for treating patients with locally advanced disease, an advantage may also be assumed in the intermediate uh, risk group. Also, as Professor Pareja said before, it's an accepted option in clinical practice guidelines like NCCN guidelines, and maybe that makes it more tempting to use in clinical practice chemotherapy. Uh, in, in the recent National Cancer Database study, almost 60% of patients that received adjuvant radiotherapy for intermediate risk factors also received chemotherapy. We think that the toxicity of additional chemotherapy should be essential as part of patient concealing for adjuvant treatment. Yeah, and um, and you know one of the other factors is the, the issue of the pathology uh, review. You know, I mean, uh, there are centers that have outstanding pathologists, but there there are centers where the the, the expertise may not be there. And, and uh, Rene, this question comes also from uh, Harris Arolampas in, uh, in Greece. And he says, when considering whether to give adjuvant treatment to a patient who has undergone a radical hysterectomy, they have intermediate risk, should these patients actually have their pathology reviewed in an expert center by an expert pathologist? Pedro, as I said before, I do recommend to discuss all those patients in a multidisciplinary DISPO conference. And of course, in this setting, pathology review should be mandatory for all those cases. Yeah. And, and um, you know, uh, another issue as it pertains to the pathology evaluation and actually also the changes that there have been in terms of surgical approach is the issue of sentinel lymph node biopsy and ultra staging techniques. So David, uh, I wanted to ask you, Gabriela Shivardi also asked, uh, in your opinion, how should sentinel lymph node biopsy and ultra staging impact the decision of adjuvant treatment in the intermediate risk cervical cancer population? Uh, undoubtedly, the use of sentinel lymph node detection has changed the management of clinical early stage cervical cancer we may select better patients undergoing surgical management with advanced imaging, but also with sentinel lymph node in routine clinical practice. As the sentinel lymph node detects twice as many patients with lymph node metastasis through the ultra staging process to detect low volume disease in patients that maybe otherwise could be considered only intermediate risk and not high risk, the prognosis of this new group of intermediate risk could be better than before. And this group of intermediate risk patients could even in the future be selected for observation instead of any kind of adjuvant treatment. Great. And, and now let's let's talk a little bit about moving forward. You know, and, and Renee, I'll start with you. Um, the, this question actually is from Sarita Sharma, one of our uh, fellows as well. Um, and she asks, how, what do you feel should be uh, the new parameters or risk factors that should define an intermediate risk group. Uh, thanks, Pedro. As, as David mentioned before, the new parameters can be found in the Cervantes protocol published concomitantly in this issue. They are tumor larger than four centimeters or tumor between two and four centimeters and LBSI or 
tumor between two and four centimeters and tumor-free distance greater than three millimeters the, to the resection margin, or tumor between two and four centimeters, 10 centimeters and deep stromal infiltration defined as more than two thirds of cervical stroma. I am personally pretty concerned on operating patients with tumors larger than four centimeters, but the only way to do it in the safest way is into an IRB approved clinical trial. Great. And, and I think this next question, I think is obviously also hypothetical as I don't think that there's any data. Um, this one's also from Sarita. And she asked, um, what do you think should be the optimum adjuvant treatment for HPV independent tumors? Should this be now part of the intermediate risk criteria? Uh, David, you want to answer that one? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, the relatively new classification of cervical cancer in HPV-independent or HPV-associated cervical cancer is exciting for us. As far as we know from retrospective studies, the molecular characteristics and also the prognosis of patients with HPV-independent tumors are different, with the possible high risk of lymph node metastasis, distant metastasis, recurrence, and also death. However, there are still some critical gaps in knowledge regarding this specific population, and no particular therapeutic strategies have been developed or prospectively assessed based on HPV status yet. We think that until new evidence is available, these patients should still be treated with the same criteria. Great. So then now, as we come to the conclusion of the podcast, I'll ask Renee one last question. Um, can you share with us, uh, when do you observe, when do you do radiation, and when do you do chemoradiation in intermediate risk patients after a radical hysterectomy? Perfect, Pedro. As I, as I mentioned before, we, we used to discuss those patients in multidisciplinary conferences, and most of the times, the decision is to give just radiotherapy, as suggested by Sedlis Piper, without brachytherapy. In those patients with intermediate criteria, in some cases, according to individual risk, for instance, tumor larger than expected, cervical invasion close to the resection margin, chemotherapy can be an option after discussion with, with the rest of the team. We also offer chemoradiotherapy in the presence of nodal, parametral, or margin involvement. And trying to be as honest as I can, I don't remember to observe cases with at least two sedlis criteria, not to date. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Well, thank you, Renee. And then the last question for David uh, comes actually appropriately from our fellow from Colombia, Tatiana Palacios. Um, and she asks um, your thoughts regarding the reevaluation of intermediate risk factors. Um, you know, with, with the different radiotherapy techniques that we have today, more modern technology, more precise diagnostic imaging, new FIGO classification, no longer use of minimally invasive radical hysterectomy. How should we move forward in the evaluation and management of these patients um, without the data from the prospective studies? How do, we, how do we move forward until we have such important information available? All right. Our patients now certainly differ from those 20 or 30 years ago, like you said, imaging, surgery, pathological evaluation, radiotherapy techniques 
have all changed and have improved through the years. It's possible that the intermediate risk now represents a different prognosis group with better oncologic outcomes. And it is reflected in contemporary observational studies with better recurrence and survival outcomes for these patients, uh, acknowledging all the bias of this type of a study. However, a change in clinical practice requires always using the best available evidence. And we think that the effort and time required to conduct a new randomized control trial are massive until we can safely change uh, these definitions for intermediate risk and treatment strategies for this population. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Rene, David Viveros, Rene Pareja, and of course, obviously crediting Juliana Rodriguez, who is also the co-author in this article. Congratulations on really putting together all of this work. It's always so much fun to uh, to discuss these topics with you both. I think you know certainly the the junior faculty did superbly well, and and the senior faculty should be extremely proud. So thank you both again for uh, number one, accepting the invitation to doing the podcast. And then number two, for all the continued contributions uh, to gynecologic oncology, particularly in the field of uh, cervical cancer. And thank you, Arthur, for recording this podcast. Thank you, Pedro and Arthur, for having us. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed this podcast. <laughs>